Welcome home, Brother Ronnie. Glad to have you back, brother. Ben, you did a great job in his absence. We're very blessed to have people who can step in, fill in when we're needed. Amen. You're visiting with us. We're glad you're here. I want you to have a good experience with the Lord. And if you have a good experience with him, that means you had a good experience with us. <laughs> so let's work to that end. Um, I want to do something this morning. I, I, if you don't mind, I would like for all of us to do a little exercise this morning. So can you just stand up with me for just a minute? I mean, I, actually, I'm kidding. You can, you can, you can be seated. I just want to see how many of you do what I ask you to do, you know. No. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to do any push-ups or jumping jacks. I saw Mr. Dave over here doing some. You know, some of you broke out in a sweat when I mentioned the word exercise. So. You guys are fun. It's not the kind of exercise that I want us to do, but we're not going to do one, okay? It's not going to be as painful Everybody can participate. You'll enjoy it. Here's what I want us to do. I want to know who can name both of their parents. If you can do that, just raise your hand. If you can name both of your parents, just raise your hand. Pretty easy. Most everybody knows that. Now, who can name all four of your grandparents? By name, not grandma and grandpa, but by name. There you go. Raise your hand. That's pretty good. It, that's pretty easy as well. It's fixing to get hard, though. <laughs> How many of you can name all eight of your great, great, or your great grandparents? All eight? By name? One person? Wow. Hey. That's hard. And unless you've been on a PBS documentary show, Finding Your Roots, you know, with Henry Louis Gates, you probably have no idea who all of those people are. I can only name two of eight. Alvin and Harriet Smith. The other three, I, you know, other six, I have no idea who they are. I know their last names. Halls, Lewis, and Green. Beyond that, I don't know. If you don't know those things, go back and research that and find that out and pass that on. That's good information, right? You need to know that. You know, less than a century ago, our grandparents were living in the prime of their life. Did their life matter? Absolutely. Absolutely it mattered. And yet here we are today, and their names escape us. We don't know who they were. We don't have a clue who they were. We don't know where they lived. We don't know how many kids they had. We don't know what kind of job they performed. We, we don't know when they died. We probably don't know where they were buried. I do know that my great-great-grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee. I've seen a picture of her. She was a beautiful lady. Probably buried somewhere over around uh, Asheville in that area up on Black Mountain probably. Time has moved on. And all that they were and all that they believed and all that they accomplished in their entire lifetime pretty much has disappeared over the horizon. 
Well, guess what, my friends? It's going to be the same way with you. Right now, your kids probably know who you are. At least I hope they do. <laughs> and your grandchildren, they probably know who you are. But if you go just one more generation up the family tree, I'm pretty sure that they won't know who your name is. They won't know very, they'll know very, very little about your life story. So what can we do to be remembered? How, how do you want to be remembered? Think of that. How do you intend to leave your legacy and have a lasting significance? How do you do that? It's kind of what this message is all about today. And I want us to kind of do a little exercise as we look into Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to read these first six verses for you. And I want you to listen carefully. And I want to see if you can see it. Listen carefully. Luke writes, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was one of the most influential Jews in the Roman tax collecting business. He was a Jew, but he worked for the Romans. And he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree beside the road so that he could watch from there. And when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus, quickly come down, for I must be a guest in your home today. And it says in verse 6 that Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. I want you to think with me. Dr. Luke tells us that, that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. If you know your Bible, you know that the Bible names one more tax collector. He was a man named Matthew. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. But outside of those two men, how many more first century Jewish tax collectors can you name? None. Do you get my point? I'm certain that there were hundreds and hundreds of them who lived and died, who worked feverishly to collect taxes, and yet every memory, every record of them has completely vanished. But that's not true with Zacchaeus. But why? What made him different? Why do we remember him? I think it's because his whole life turned around, and it changed the day that he encountered Jesus. That's when his life started making a difference. That's when he started building and growing a spiritual legacy. The beautiful thing is that we can see the very moment when his life started making a difference in ways that would long outlive his life. It was in that moment when his eyes connected with Jesus and he responded in obedience to the words of Jesus. It happened when he came down out of that sycamore tree and joyfully received Jesus into his life. It happened when Zacchaeus was spiritually birthed into the kingdom of God. It happened when he said yes to Jesus. It happened the day that he accepted Jesus Christ into his life and he was gloriously saved. Oh, my friends, have you ever had one of those days? Not everybody has. We sang a song. He has saved us, but not everybody's saved, right? Not even in this room is everybody saved. My prayer is, if you haven't had one of those days, I hope today will be your day. 
Today could be the very best day of your life. The very best day. I want to encourage you to take some time later on today and read the first 10 verses of chapter 19. We're going to look at those. But I want you to also go back and read the last 10 verses of chapter 18. To really understand what I'm talking about, you're going to need to do that. You're going to need to do that to be able to really answer the question that I'm about to ask. Here's the question. What does a blind beggar have in common with a tax collector? It's not a trick joke. It is an observation that is a very important one. What did they have in common? Well, the scriptures say they both met Jesus as he was entering the city of Jericho. And both of them desperately needed a miracle. The blind man needed his sight. That is a precious thing to be able to see. I was talking to Ronnie the other day. We had a, an evangelist that come, came to our church and preached a revival one time. And uh, he was blind until he was nine years old. And one day out of nowhere, he Then all of a sudden be able to be, to have your sight. What a blessing that would be. This blind man needed his sight. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, needed salvation. One man, the beggar, he shouted as Jesus walked by, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But the other man, Zacchaeus, well, he climbed a tree and said not a word. And yet Jesus knew exactly, exactly what he needed. Both of the men tried to see Jesus with their own eyes, but one was blind and the other was just too short. He was what we would say vertically challenged, right? Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus met both of those men in their greatest need. And he gave them what they had to have. I don't know what your need is, but he can meet you as well. He can take care of you. John MacArthur writes about this story. He says the, the familiar story of Zacchaeus appearing only in Luke's gospel is a rich and instructive story with a concluding verse that expresses the most valuable and glorious truth ever revealed. In that closing statement, the Lord Jesus Christ summed up the whole purpose of his incarnation. He came to seek out and to redeem lost sinners. Luke 19.10. One of those verses that I've had memorized for a long time. The New Century version of that verse says this. The Son of Man came to find lost people and save them. Some other translations like the, the New Living Translation says. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He didn't come looking for lost puppies. Or lost treasure. He came looking for lost souls. Now, here's a good question. Why did Jesus come to earth to look for lost people? Why did Jesus come to earth to look for lost people? You want me to tell you why? It's because lost people don't go looking for him. They don't. Lost people can't. And they don't look, go looking for God. They do, they do the opposite. They run from God. Pretty obvious. 
there's proof of all of this that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, what did, did, what did Adam and Eve do when they sinned against God? Did they go looking for God? No, God came looking for them. They actually ran and they hid in the bushes. They were hiding from God when he came. He normally would come and walk with them, and there was this time when they would meet, and, and they weren't where they were supposed to be. Now, here's an interesting thing. When Jesus came into the garden and he didn't see Adam and Eve, he called out to Adam, 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 where are you? Why in the world would God ask a question like that? Isn't he omnipotent? Doesn't he know everything? Didn't he know they were in the bushes? Absolutely. So why did he ask the question? Well, it wasn't for him. It was for Adam and Eve. God wanted them to see what sin had done to them. It is separated from them from him. There was no fellowship after their sin. You know, throughout human history, God has always been actively seeking out the lost, no matter where we've wandered. There was an occasion when God spoke through Ezekiel about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And this is what God said. He said, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search and find my sheep I will be like a shepherd looking for his scattered flock. I will find my sheep and rescue them from all the places to which they were scattered on the dark and cloudy day. The 15th chapter of Luke is a very interesting chapter. It talks about lostness. It teaches about lostness. And it does that through several illustrations. We have the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, and the one that I'm about to read, the parable of the lost sheep. In verse 1 it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners, they often came and they listened to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such despicable people, eating with them. My soul, why in the world would he do that? Well, not only does Jesus teach about lostness, but he teaches about salvation and what it takes for a lost soul to become saved. And he gives an illustration in verse 3. It says, so Jesus used this illustration. In verse 4 it says, if you had 100 sheep and one of them strayed away and was lost in the wilderness, wouldn't you leave the 99 others to go and search for the lost one until you found it? Wouldn't you do that? Makes sense. He says, and then you would joyfully carry it home on your shoulders. When you arrived, you would call together your friends and neighbors to rejoice with you because your lost sheep was found. Notice this, the application. In the same way, heaven will be happier over one lost sinner, one lost sinner who returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Friends, there's a party in heaven every time a lost soul is saved. They rejoice. They rejoice up there. We ought to rejoice. Amen? I have a friend, every time somebody walks the aisle and accepts Christ, he stands in front of the, aisle, in front of the congregation and says, Hallelujah! And he means it. Praise God. Now, here's a tough reality pill to swallow. Hang on, this one's a big one. If Jesus did not come, if he had not come looking for us, there would absolutely be no way 
for us to receive forgiveness. No forgiveness, no reconciliation, no, no salvation, no hope of heaven, no way of ever being made right with God. If he had not come, it would be impossible. I was speaking to a man the other day who told me he had been raised Catholic. He said, but now I'm an agnostic. He almost wanted to say atheist, but he said agnostic. But then we got to talking about God, and, and, he, and he said to me, he said, you know, I just don't, he said, I believe there's a God, but I just don't understand this God thing. I don't understand how there can be a God in heaven and, and then Jesus down here on earth. I, I, don't know, I don't know who they are. Who is this Jesus? Well, you know me. You open the door, I'm going to walk through it. And he opened the door, and I began to talk to him about Jesus. And I said to him, I said, you know, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And he kind of cocked his head and looked at me like, what? I said, you know, the Bible says God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity, the triune nature of God. One God in three persons. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. I said, you know, to describe the Trinity is kind of like water. H2O. If you leave it at room temperature, it's liquid, right? If you freeze it, it becomes ice. If you boil it, it becomes steam. But no matter what you do to it, it's still H2O, right? Hey, that's a pretty good illustration for the Trinity, right? I'm a simple person. Keep it simple for me. The Bible says Jesus is the Son of God. But it also says He's God. And we must never forget that. He is no, He's not lesser than the Heavenly Father. Right? That's not a good word. Lesser. He's not less than the Father above. But the Bible also says that Jesus is the Savior whom God sent. He is the Savior sent by, he's the only Savior sent by God. Jesus is the Savior who God has sent to save us from our sinfulness. We need a Savior. We got to have a Savior. He's our only hope of ever making it into heaven. The, the world, for the most part, has no problem admitting that Jesus existed. They don't mind saying he's a real person in history. Some will even say, well, he, he, he was a great prophet. There are a lot of people who believe him to be a strong, moral leader and, and a great teacher and, and, a, and a great man who espoused a whole lot of good ideas that raised the spiritual consciousness of humanity. Some will even say that he's a wonderful example of what strong religious life is supposed to look like. Look to Jesus and you know how to be religious. But listen, listen to there are very few people in our world that are willing to accept and believe that Jesus came into this world to rescue lost sinners just like you and me. They don't recognize him for that. They don't want to believe that. But that's exactly what Scripture teaches us over and over again, that God sent his Son here to save us. The angel spoke to, to Joseph about Mary in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and he said, she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. John the Baptist, when he was standing on the shore of the Galilee, the river there, and, and he was speaking with his disciples, and Jesus showed up. He pointed to Jesus, and he said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
the Apostle John wrote, And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, for there is no sin in him. The Bible said God made him to be sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Paul even testified when he wrote his letter to Timothy. He said, this is a true saying and everyone should believe it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he said, I was the worst of them all. Folks, Jesus came to save me. Imagine that. Me. Little, old, insignificant me. Came to save you. Came to save all of us. What we all need to realize is that we all need saving. We all need saving. And if you haven't been saved, you need to be saved. You don't want to be left behind. You don't. Zacchaeus certainly knew that. He, he knew he needed to be saved. This profound story of Zacchaeus that's recorded in, in Dr. Luke's uh, 19th chapter of his gospel, it's divided, you can divide it up into three simple sections. It's a beautiful story that I honestly believe all of us can relate to. So in this first section, I want you to see the sinner that Zacchaeus was. Look with me again at these first four verses. Said Jesus entered Jericho. By the way, um, we were talking earlier about going to Israel. Uh, Jericho is one of those cities that I've seen from a distance, but I didn't get to go in. We, uh, we made it through two Israeli checkpoints, got to the third one, and uh, they turned us around and said, you can't go in today. It was two weeks before Arafat came into the promised land for the first time. And the Jews were flexing their muscles and they didn't want us spending our money in an Air, a, 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 a Palestinian city. It's mostly Palestinians that live there. So they made us go somewhere else. And we wound up going down to Qumran and eating in a sandwich shop with about five other, 500 other people <laughs> in a little bitty sandwich shop. It was unbelievable. I'll tell that story another day. Anyway, look at what he says. There was a man there in Jericho named Zacchaeus, and he was one of the most influential Jews in the Roman tax-collecting business. And he had, he had become very rich, and he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowds. So he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore tree beside the road so that he could watch from there. Zacchaeus. That's an interesting name, but it's an ironic name. It's ironic because the word Zacchaeus actually means clean, innocent, pure, <laughs> and even righteous. But listen, Zacchaeus was anything but that. Anything but that. In fact, Jesus went on mission to Jericho to find and save lost people and to clearly demonstrate that by bringing salvation to Jericho's most notorious Sinner. That's what he was. He was a scoundrel. And, and so I, I would say to you, if, if Jesus could save Zacchaeus, he could save anybody. Even you. Even me. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. In fact, he was the commissioner of taxes in his region. And all common tax collectors had to pay him a percentage of the taxes that they collected. And as a result of that, I mean, he's dipping into everybody's pocket. He became a very rich man. I would say that 
Zacchaeus was stinking, filthy, rich. He had more money than he could spend. He had money stashed everywhere. But he was even more, listen to this, he was even more a lonely man. He had money, but he was lonely. His money bought him no friends. His only friends were crooks that were just like him that couldn't be trusted. We know that because of who he was and what he stood for, he was banned from the temple. He was banned from going into the synagogue and being able to worship God. Everybody considered him to be unclean, and they refused to have anything to do with him. He also knew what it felt to be alienated from God. He was greedy, but he wouldn't turn loose of that money. He was selfish. He was a liar. He was a thief. He knew he was the worst of sinners and that he was going to hell when he died, if not before. So he had no hope whatsoever of ever getting into heaven. He was a man that walked around with a guilty conscience. You know, you know what that feels like to have a guilty conscience? I do. I've walked around with a guilty conscience. And I have a good feeling you have too. He had a guilty conscience, and because of that, he, was a very, he had a very dissatisfied heart. Uh, to say it another way, Zacchaeus was a miserable man. Miserable. Tried to cover it, but he was miserable. Zacchaeus was a convicted sinner. Not that he'd been convicted in a court of law, but he was convicted in his heart. He knew he was a sinner. He knew it. As you move on in this story, you find the Savior that Zacchaeus met in verse 5. It says when Jesus came by, and you've got to understand that everywhere Jesus went at this point in his life, people were crowding around him. There was a whole crowd of people around Jesus that day. And as he came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, quickly come down, for I must be a guest in your home today. When Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus was setting up on that tree, he was really out on a limb in his life. <laughs> there were a few things that Jesus did that must have shocked Zacchaeus. The first thing was he stopped. He didn't have to stop, but he chose to stop. When he got even with Zacchaeus, he stopped and he looked up at him. And he made eye contact with Zacchaeus. Can you imagine making eye contact with God? I'm sure I'd melt. He made eye, can, eye, eye contact with, with, with Zacchaeus and, and he called him by name even though they had never met before. God knows your name. He knows everything about you. The last thing that Jesus did was he commanded Zacchaeus to come down out of that tree and take him home with him. Let me just say this. Some of you men need to take Jesus home with you so your family will get to know him. You hear me? You are the spiritual leader of your homes, and it's your responsibility to take Jesus home with you. They may never meet him if you don't. I think it's interesting to realize that Jesus knows everyone who's going to be saved. He knows who. He knows when. He knows where. 
He knew everything about this day. This was a divine appointment day. This was Zacchaeus' day to be saved. This was a day of mercy and grace for him. The amazing thing is that he didn't deserve to be saved, but he could be saved. You know, nobody deserves to be saved. But the grace and mercy of God makes salvation available. It's not that you deserve to be saved, it's the, but it's that you can be saved. What a gift, what a blessing. What an opportunity. Oh, what a Savior we have, right? Oh, what a Savior we have. I, I would say this to you, and you know who you are. If God is calling you to be saved, please don't waste that opportunity. Take advantage of it. It's the most important thing you could ever do. Zacchaeus didn't waste his, praise God. It said that Zacchaeus quickly climbed down out of the tree and he took Jesus home. He took him home. He took him to his house in great excitement and great joy. That's the best thing any of us could do. And you know, the rest is history with this story. As you move on into verse 8, we find the salvation that Zacchaeus received. There was a Savior that he met. Now we're talking about his salvation. I wonder, how many of you remember who led you to Jesus Christ? You remember their name? Yeah. God more than likely has used someone to share the story of Jesus with you if you were saved. I don't remember the name of the man that led me to Christ. I remember who preached the sermon. I remember the name of the sermon title. But I also remember that when it came time for me to, to get a little counseling and, and have somebody fine-tune the gospel presentation, it was a Christian clown that took me in the back room and led me to Christ. He had makeup on. I don't even know what he looked like. I, I don't know his name, but, but God does. And, and, and if you've been led by somebody to, to Christ, you know who they were. You should. Yeah. How many of you can remember the conversation that you had? How many of you remember the conversation that you had with the Lord in that moment? What did you say to him? I found it rather interesting as I was reading this story. Dr. Luke does not give us a play-by-play -play account of how Jesus shared the gospel truth with Zacchaeus. And neither do we know all the details of this unrepentant uh, or this repentant tax collector and how he responded. We don't know what he said. But friends, there's no question in my mind that this man put his trust in Jesus and was saved. I know this by the evidence that I see and just a little bit of information that I have, the, the evidence I see in the transformed life that he experienced. The Bible says that Zacchaeus made his sinful confession standing before the Lord. At that moment when he's up the tree and Jesus is down in front of him, there's this transforming moment that took place. Zacchaeus comes down and he stands in front of God. That's where it all happens. Zacchaeus stood there in front of the Lord. Now you think about this. Better now 
than later, right? Better to stand now in joyful worship than bow later in fearful regret. What does the scripture say? Philippians 2.10 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee. It has been said in Scripture that the entire intelligent universe is called to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. And we will all bow before him. The psalmist said, why do the nations rage? Why do the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle and rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains. And free ourselves from this slavery. That's rebellion. That's what we're seeing in our world today. Everybody wants to be free from the spiritual gravity of God. But notice verse 4. It says, but the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, my holy city. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, he says in verse 10, You kings, you rulers of the world, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of your pursuits for his anger can flare up in an instant. But what joy! What joy for all who find protection in him. You know, you don't have to read very far into this chapter in order to see the sinfulness of man's heart and our desperate need of a Savior. It has been said that if we don't keep our hearts in check with our Heavenly Father, it won't be long until we attempt to occupy his throne, his place on the throne. Rebellion is an ever-present reality in the hearts of unbelievers and believers as we reflect an attitude of entitlement rather than a spirit of humility. Paul said, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee. Do you understand that this mandate includes, listen to this, it includes all of the angels of heaven. Every angel will bow before the throne of God. Every angel. It also includes all the saved, the, the dead in Christ, the redeemed. It includes all the obe obedient believers that are still alive on earth when this day happens. But it also includes all the disobedient rebels on earth and Satan, his demons, and all the lost of humanity that will reside in hell. It includes everybody. Everybody. No one escapes this day. No one. Everyone will bow before the king. Everyone. On this particular day that I'm talking about, some will worship him. 
It'll be a glorious day for those who are able to worship him. But others will wail and reek with fear and trembling because they are bowing now in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords, something they never thought they would ever do. But they have no choice. Peter writes, Christ also suffered. When he died for our sins once for all time, he never sinned, but he died for sinners that he might bring us safely home to God. He suffered physical death and he was raised to life in the spirit but now now Christ has gone to heaven and he is seated in the place of honor next to God God the son is next to God the father and all the angels and all the authorities and all the powers are what they are bowing before him make no mistake Zacchaeus confessed Standing before the Lord. But he also made a very costly commitment to the Lord. Knowing that he was a sinner and knowing the grace that Jesus was now showing him. Notice what Zacchaeus says. Zacchaeus said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. Half of my wealth. He was a wealthy man. Wealthy people don't just give money away. That's how they got it. Can I just say that this is what real repentance looks like? Repentance is far more than just saying, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Real repentance is being right with God. It's being right with your fellow man. And doing whatever you have to do to get there. He goes on to say, and if I've cheated people on their taxes... I will give them back four times as much. Four times as much. The law only says you had to give back two times as much. But he's going to do it four times. As you can see, Zacchaeus declares that his intent is to make full restitution for all the wrongs that he's committed. God has convicted him and let him know of the things that he'd done wrong. And he, he, he knew that he'd been living a life as a thief. And he knew that he was a habitual liar. He couldn't tell the truth if he had to. But now he knew that the right thing to do was to give it all back and to make restitution, giving the maximum that the law required. Oh, my friends, Zacchaeus was a changed man, a changed man. The genuine salvation of Zacchaeus is clearly evident by the complete transformation of his behavior. Jesus saw a changed man standing there before him. His salvation was certainly real. I've mentioned Joyce's dad a few times, and some of you may have heard this story, but it's a a worthy story to repeat. Joyce's dad was uh, frugal. His name was Friley, but he, he was frugal. He kept his money. He held it close. He didn't waste it. He was to have a procedure one day, a catheterization on his heart. We were over there with them before he was going to the hospital. And he said to me, he said, son, can I, can I talk to you in the bedroom? And we went in the bedroom together and he closed the door. When your father-in-law closed his door behind you in the bedroom, he sat down on the side of the bed and he said, come sit with me. I need to talk to you. 
He began talking to me about what was about to happen. They were going to do that catheterization. He felt certain there were things that were wrong that needed attention. And I could tell he was frightful of the surgery, but he was even more frightful that he might die and not make it into heaven. And he began asking me about the Lord, and I shared Christ with him, and Kenny prayed and received Christ. He became a changed man. He went on to the hospital. They did the procedure. Everything went well that day. And he was in the hospital the next day recovering before they released him to go home. And Kenny took the telephone and he called Brother Don, which was his wife's, Joyce's mother's, pastor. And he, he said, Brother Don, I need to tell you something. He said, I accepted Jesus yesterday. But he said, I need something else. I need you to tell me how to tithe. Tell me how to tithe. I know Christians are supposed to tithe, and I want to understand this so I can do the right thing. Listen, when, when I heard that story, I knew Kenny got saved. <laughs> if he was going to turn his money loose to God, there was no doubt that God already had his heart. Jesus confirmed the reality of Zacchaeus' salvation. Again, MacArthur said so complete was Zacchaeus' transformation that he instantly went from being a thief to being a benefactor, from being selfish to being unselfish, from being a taker to being a giver. That very day, he was justified by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. The one who had been lost was saved and delivered from sin, death, and hell. Look at verse 9. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this house today. Now that didn't mean everybody got saved in that house. It just means daddy went home saved and took Jesus with him. And because of that, the rest of the family probably came to know him. He goes on to say, for this man has shown himself to be a son of Abraham. He's a child of God. But notice verse 10. This is is that all-important truth that I want you to get. Jesus said, and I, the Son of Man, have come to seek and to save, notice this, those like him. He's referring to Zacchaeus here. I've come to seek and to save those like Zacchaeus who are lost. Are you like Zacchaeus? Are you lost? Are you in need of salvation? Do you need to be saved? Do you need to trust Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of your life? To forgive your sins and, and, and to, to take that separation between you and God and bring you back into a right relationship with Him? Do you need Him? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Who is this Jesus? He is the Savior. The only Savior that God is going to send into this world. And if you're to be saved, you're going to need to trust Him. But know this, if you will, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been or who you've been with. He can forgive your sins, save your soul, and make you right with God. Do you need that? Do you? That's been my prayer all week. God, show them what they need. That's what Zacchaeus came to understand. 
He knew he didn't need money. He needed a Savior. Do you need a Savior? I promise you this. If you'll come this morning during this invitation that we're about to have, I'll help you to know Jesus. And you'll be ready for heaven.